all across America and around the world. This is Veterans Radio. This is Veterans Radio. Welcome to Veterans Radio. I am Jim Fawson. I'm the officer of the deck today. We've got some great programs for you. I think you'll find very interesting. We always want to remind you, you can find more about Veterans Radio at its Facebook site or by going to veteransradio.net where we're on the web 24-7. You can find a lot of our podcasts there as well. We post new ones every Tuesday, so you can get a new story, a new interview, something you didn't know before by going to veteransradio.net. And before we get started, we want to thank our sponsors. First up, we want to thank National Veteran Business Development Council, nvbdc.org. It was established to certify both service-disabled and veteran-owned businesses. You'll find out how they can help your business by going to nvbdc.org. We also want to thank Eisenhower Center. It's a brain injury recovery center. Learn more about eisenhowercenter.com. They're located in Michigan and in Florida. We want to thank Legal Help for Veterans. Legal Help for Veterans fights for veterans' disability rights all across the nation. You can reach them at 800-693-4800 or on the web at legalhelpforveterans.com. Contact us if you'd like to be a sponsor on Veterans Radio, and let's move on to our program. We want to welcome to Veterans Radio today, uh, I'm not sure we've had a four-star on before, but General Larry O. Spencer, retired from the United States Air Force. Uh, General, welcome to Veterans Radio. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm ecstatic to be here. Uh, looking forward to the conversation. Um, and so thank you so much. Well, we're glad to have you on, General, and, and uh, uh, we're going to try to pull out of you some of your life lessons that you've written into a recent book called Dark Horse, General Larry O. Spencer and his journey from the horseshoe to the Pentagon, and we'll explain the title a little bit as we go along, but uh, as I was telling the General earlier before we started recording, that first part, before he starts putting on the stars, is a really interesting life uh, journey and kind of unusual. Um, so as a young man growing up in uh, Washington, D.C., you were you were in a, uh, you know, kind of a tough inner city neighborhood. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, those uh, those early years, General. Uh, sure. And it, it, thinking back on it, it is sort of interesting to think about. Uh, so I was born and raised uh, in Washington, D.C., and southeast uh, on a street. Uh, it was actually 46th Place is the name of the street officially. Uh, but unofficially, it was called the Horseshoe because it's, it's actually shaped like a horseshoe. Um, and, again, in, in an inner-city environment, uh, growing up in the uh, uh, 60s, essentially, uh, experiencing the uh, civil rights movement, uh, got the opportunity to attend uh, the Martin Luther King March on Washington, uh, all of the anti-Vietnam protests, uh, watching that on TV every night uh, with, with body counts uh, and, and all of the opposition in the country at the time to Vietnam, uh, 
My father uh, was an Army soldier. I spent 20 years uh, in the Army, uh, Purple Heart from, uh, uh, from the Korean War. My mother uh, hadn't graduated high school, um, and maybe we can probably get into that a little later. Uh, but, but really poor school system. Uh, I was not a very good student. Uh, and, and, and as a result of that, uh, found my way into you know, situations I probably should not have been, been involved with. Uh, but, you know, the neighborhood itself, uh, I think for the times, uh, was, was fairly typical. Uh, but, uh, unfortunately, because, uh, I was in an inner city and, and not really, exposed to uh, the potential and possibilities that I could have as an adult. Uh, you know, my self-esteem and self-worth uh, was not very high. Uh, and frankly, as a, as a young kid uh, and growing into a teenager, uh, I really didn't have much of a, uh, you know, much of a plan or much hope uh, for my future. Uh, to be honest with you, uh, back then, particularly growing up in the uh, I was going to say predominantly African-American uh, neighborhood, but it was 100 uh, percent African-American. Um, uh, you know, at the time, the expectation was that uh, I would be good at sports, and I was. Uh, unfortunately, that same expectation was not there for, for ac- academic success, um, so I was, I was not a very good student. But, uh, but putting all that together, um, it, it was an interesting uh, childhood. I learned a lot. Uh, for my environment. And, you know, in hindsight, it, it made me who I am today, but uh, certainly not, you know, when folks, you kind of teed it up well, when folks ask me, you know, how did you become a four-star general? Well, well first of all, I think that's the wrong question. Uh, I don't I don't think there is a formula. Uh, but when they found out about, you know, my story, my life, my, particularly my beginning, they they kind of you know get the get the picture that it's not really where you start or how you start or what conditions you're born into it's it's what you do with the, those conditions and what you and, and how you prepare yourself for opportunities that are out there that really count. Well, I'm going to back you up a little bit and probe a little harder because I think um, it really is instructive for folks to know. Your parents grew up in the rural South under Jim Crow. Correct. Your your dad lost his left hand in the Korean War, and wore a prosthetic that today, you know, the nobody would the the difference between prosthetics today and back then is so dramatic. It, you know, I think the I hate to use this phrase, but it was Captain Hook back then. Right. That couldn't have been easy for a young boy to deal with, not only, you know, looking at him yourself, but like how the neighborhood and how others um, uh, viewed your father's injuries. So, you know, those are rough things as a young man to deal with, I would think. Yes. uh, And in my case, uh, you know, keep in mind that uh, uh, folks back then that served in the military, the Korean War, World War II, uh, to some extent, Vietnam, but you know that generation of of, uh, of folks did not talk about the, and still don't uh, talk about their war experience. Um, there was no acronym called PTSD, so they they were told to you know when, when they had the trauma of war and the injuries of war, they were told to to suck it up. And so 
if you can imagine, I grew up as a kid in a neighborhood. My, you're right. My my father wore a hook. I mean, uh, Captain Hook is probably a good description. The Captain Hook from the uh, Peter Pan play, um, and he never told us. Uh, I, you know, I, I'm, I was the oldest of six kids. He never told us what happened. Um, you know, we we sort of knew that he lost his left hand in the Korean War, but the circumstances he never talked about. And that was really tough for me because, you know, kids can be cruel, as you know, and uh, I got teased a lot, you know, about my father, you know, and, and being Captain Hook, all the Captain Hook jokes. Um, and, and that was really tough for me, one, because it, it, it sounded so cruel and unfair, but two, I could not go back to them and explain what happened. And, uh, and so that was, that was, you know, looking back on it, it was really tough on, on my brothers and sisters and I, um, you know, just to take it a step further, I didn't find out about my father's injury until I was a colonel in the Air Force, if, if, you, if you can imagine, and uh, uh, happened to be in his home. Uh, he was going to attend my pinning on ceremony, and he handed me a book. Um, and, and the book was the Firefight at Yichon. It was, a, it was a book written by his then company commander about the Korean War. Uh, and, you know, I, I took the book home. I didn't think much about it because he didn't tell me anything about the book. He just handed it to me. Uh, a couple of weeks later, because I had it sitting on my nightstand, I opened it and started reading it. And I was just fascinated uh, about the graphic nature of the book and the Korean War. And, and, and to put this in context, you know, the uh, military was, wasn't integrated until uh, just before the Korean War. And so uh, even though technically... President Truman uh, integrated the military. Uh, it wasn't really integrated, uh, you know, for pra- on practical terms. So right, right. my dad was in the Army during this period. Uh, and so the he was in a, you know, an unofficial segregated unit. Uh, and so his company commander was also uh, black. Uh, so to make a long story short, uh, he uh, was, was considered one of the sharper uh, soldiers in the unit. He and another uh, gentleman, uh, Sergeant Monroe, were tasked to move a bulldozer from the town they were in to the South Korean town of Yichon. Uh, and because the flatbed truck that they would typically transport the bulldozer on was inoperable, my dad and this Sergeant Monroe were tasked to what the term they used was walk because it, it moved so slow, uh, but to essentially drive this this bulldozer uh, the, the total of about 100 miles. And so, as you can imagine, uh, that was a, you know, a night and day, 24-hour uh, task uh, because the rest of the company moved on. So, during that trip, my, my dad fell off the, uh, the, the uh, bulldozer while it was still moving, fell onto the tracks, uh, and instinctively turned his body off the tracks to get on the ground. Unfortunately, his left hand got caught in the gears uh, of the bulldozer and got mauled. Uh, and, and think about the timing here, because today we have combat search and rescue that can, you know, can transport a wounded person from the battlefield to a hospital in a matter of hours. Uh, that was not the case back then. And so he literally laid out on the ground uh, in, in South Korea, cold, no one around to help other than the, his, the soldier that was with him on the bulldozer. Uh, he fell into a coma. Uh, he developed gangrene in his hand, uh, was in really bad shape. And so they, when they finally reached him, 
they transported him to Japan, uh, and he was he, he had his left hand removed, and it, as you pointed out, uh, considered pretty primitive surgery today, uh, but he literally had his hand amputated, and uh, in the prosthetic, it was it was a simple hook. Uh, rather than now, they've got computers and, and hands that look real and, and can pretty much do anything a hand can do. Of course, they, they just didn't have that surgical procedure back then. And so he had his hand amputated. He was sent then back to Walter Reed for recovery. Uh, and, of course, they wanted to discharge him, but, you know, he didn't want to go back to the farm in southern Virginia. Uh, so he requested to stay in the Army, uh, and uh, they said he could if he could still pass his his marksmanship test, which he did, and he stayed in the army for 20 years uh, and and served most of that 20 years at the same place at the uh, over at the Walter Reed Annex. It was called Forest Glen. It was a laboratory that worked on prosthetics. So even though I'm technically a, an army brat, I, I'm really not because we never moved. I, I, I spent my entire army brat time as a kid in one house in D.C. and we never moved. So. It was quite traumatic for me, so it was uh, it was interesting. And and he and again, this is one of those lessons we're trying to pass along, folks. He never st- spoke to you about it. You read about this story in a book, and you, you know, you and your brothers and sisters. This was like, you know, not part of what was explained. It's so important to tell our family kind of what we've been through, and in some regards, it helps um, explain some of the post traumatic stress problems that a family has but that your dad's story is a whole nother uh, uh interview process but i want to get you you reference this and i think this is important too to get across you reference the farm yeah and as i re- read your story and again i'm more fascinated in the story before you start pinning on stars uh but we'll get there um talk a little bit about how the time on the grandparents' farm be, was really formative for you. It, it was it was one hundred percent formative for me for because I having you know growing up in Southeast DC, I, I didn't consider it fortunate at the time because you know my grandfather uh, who lived in southern southwestern Virginia, not far from Appomattox, had a tobacco farm. So as you can imagine, a kid growing up in Southeast DC. You know, the thought of being on a farm working tobacco fields, you know, in the middle of summer was not exactly, you know, something I wanted to do. Uh, But in hindsight, uh, it ended up being uh, very formative for me and very instructive and taught me lessons uh, that that I that I lean on today. Uh, Again, it was in the south. Uh, It it, you know, they were out there in the middle of nowhere. Uh, My father, my grandfather was a, a, a deacon in the church. Uh, and so he, you know, he and I and my cousin who was there uh, essentially worked tobacco uh, every day uh, other than Sunday when we went to church for most of the day. Um, but a particular story that was uh, really instructive for me was uh, one summer I was, I was on his farm. Uh, and, and again, those of you who haven't experienced a farm, uh, you know, it's, it's, I want to paint this picture for you because we're literally there on 60, 65 acres, really on our own. No one else is around. We very seldom leave the farm. Everything that we subsist with pretty much is, 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 is on the farm. So we didn't go for visits. We didn't, you know, go to the movies. We didn't go to the store. We didn't really go anywhere other than church on Sunday. 
and so the, uh, and, and our typical routine was to get up every morning. I had chores. I would feed the hogs. I would, you know, uh, do certain things. And then we would head out to one of the many tobacco fields. And this one particular summer, my cousin, who generally would be there with me, was with his mother in Philadelphia. So he would join us about two weeks later. So it was just my grandfather and I. He was pretty much an introvert. I was as well. So we didn't talk a lot, but he decided, you know, this particular summer that he would mentor me, I guess, for lack of a better term. And, and he taught me these nuggets of wisdom that uh, at least nuggets of wisdom in his mind, uh, not necessarily in mine, mine, my mind. As an example, he, he, he taught me the difference between a mule and a donkey. Why I needed to know that uh, is beyond me, but he thought I did. Uh, he also told me that uh, a bl- even a blind rooster finds a kernel of corn every once in a while. And frankly, I'm still scratching my head over that one as well. Uh, but so this one particular day, we jump on the tractor, which was our routine. I mean, our typical routine was we would jump on the tractor and head out to a field. This particular day, we didn't do that. He went and got the horse. He had one horse and one cow. And he got the horse, hooked up a platform to it, put a plow on the platform. We went out to one of the fields. Uh, and he hooked the plow up to this horse and started plowing these perfect rows up and down because they were going to plant vegetables later. And, and as a, you know, 11, 12-year-old kid, I was fascinated by this. I've never seen anybody operate a plow before. Um, and so I was sitting on the ground kind of playing in the dirt. My And, you know, keeping keep in mind, my grandfather and I have probably talked now more than we had since I was born. Um, and so he took a potty break, went off into the woods, and I'm sitting there thinking, okay, I can impress my grandfather if I get behind this horse and continue his work so that when he comes back, you know, he won't have as much to do. <laughs> so I strapped myself in behind this horse, had never done this before. Uh, again, you, those of you who haven't seen a plow, it's a big, heavy piece of equipment. I barely got it upright, uh, and I knew the command to make the horse go forward. And so I gave the command, the horse starts to walk. And so I'm kind of walking, trotting behind the horse. The problem is I didn't know how to operate the plow. Uh, That's problem number one. Problem number two, I didn't know the command to make the horse stop. I didn't think about that until after I got into it. Um, So now the horse is going directly across my grandfather's perfectly plowed road. Um, and, and I'm one scared, uh, don't know what to do. Don't know how to make the horse stop. And let me pause just for a second, because I want to be clear. I don't advocate this. Uh, and, and I'm, and I'm not saying that folks should do this. Times have changed, but back then, uh, in the sixties on a farm by yourself with no one else around, you could whip your kids. And, and, and in fact, not only could you whip your kids, but if the neighbors found out about it, they would encourage it. Uh, so, so I'm saying he and, and he had never done that to me before, but that's going through my mind as I'm messing up his morning's work. And so the horse is moving. I'm trying, trotting to keep up. My grandfather emerges from the woods and is in shock. He yells at me and he says, "Larry, what are you doing?" And I turn around. And if you can picture this in your mind. I'm sort of half turned looking at him, looking back at him, but trying to continue to move sideways because the horse didn't stop. And as I stumbled and almost fell, 
instinctively, I yelled out, whoa, you know, just trying to steady myself. And, of course, the horse stopped because that was the that command. Was the command. Yeah. Exactly. I didn't know that. <laughs> and so, that, so I was glad the horse stopped. But as I turned around, now my grandfather's storming toward me, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, here we go. By the way, the, the tool of choice uh, on the farm to discipline your kids was called a switch, uh, which essentially is a, a, a tree branch. And we're out there in the middle of nowhere with hundreds of tree branches in, in, in arm's reach. Um, so I'm thinking, okay, I, I'm going to get it now. And so he storms up to me, and the first thing he says was, are you okay, which I wasn't expecting. And I said, you know, yes, uh, and I was about to apologize and say, hey, I, I'm sorry, I, I was just trying to help. And he stopped me, and he said something to me that was very, maybe considered inarticulate, um, but, but was very impactful. He said to me, uh, it's okay to try and fail, but it's not okay not to try. Wow. And what he, wow, what, right? what he meant by that yeah. was, hey, I'm, I'm your grandfather. I'm proud that you tried. And by the way, you know, in your life, you, you know, there's going to be a lot of opportunities out there. You can't be afraid to try, and you can't be afraid when you fail, because by the way, you are going to fail. But, the, but what I learned from that lesson was no matter how hard it seems and, and, and how scared you are, go out there and try anyway. Uh, no. And that, that lesson has led me my entire life. It, it still leads me today. No, I think these are the sorts of things that people, like, again, kind of forget. It's common wisdom. Once you say it out loud, you go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But sometimes right. in the moment, you don't live it. And But I want to back up because I want to draw some dots. We, we didn't get a chance. To, we won't have a chance to talk much about your mom. But, you know, between your dad, your mom, your grandpa, there, there were folks along the way uh, that made the sorts of impressions, foundation building, morals, virtues that really got you along. Even though, in your own words, you have you had low self esteem, you struggled in school, and you were you were way heavier than you should have been um, right. because of that low self esteem. But there were always there was. It seems like in uh, general in your life story there's always been somebody there helping promoting uh suggesting uh, different uh, approaches and and maybe you want to comment about having those kind of that kind of support or mentors if you will 100 percent. in fact uh you know when i talk to groups today one of the things i tell them if, if they don't have multiple mentors they need to leave this room and go start developing developing them because mentors and, and folks who took an interest in me um, were, were, were so valuable to my both professional and personal life. Uh, I, I could, we could have an entire show just talking about individual mentors that impacted my life, but I'll just give you an example. Um, uh, as you know, I, I enlisted initially. And, and, and by the way, I, uh, the fact that I spent about seven and a half years enlisted uh, was so valuable to my professional uh, development that I, I can't even uh, I, I can't even uh, articulate how how valuable that was to me and how I, how much I appreciated my enlisted time. But uh, my one of my initial enlisted assignments was to, in Taiwan, uh, and again, keep in mind this was this was in the uh, early seventies. 
where, you know, long hair was in vogue. Uh, and if you could see me now, you know, and I could, you know, and, and I am, I am, let's just say I am, I am hair challenged today. So you, <laughs> so I would have to ask you to use your imagination, but back in those days, I had an Afro like you wouldn't believe. Now, now was that authorized? Uh, you know, technically no, but all my friends had long hair and we disguised it. Uh, as best we could, and and we pushed the envelope on the hair length. Let's put it that way, significantly. Uh, and so, uh, I went to Taiwan, and I made a bet with my friends that, and several of us did, that we could go the whole remote tour, the whole year, without a haircut. Uh, and all of us did. We went the entire year, and we didn't get a haircut. Uh, and so, I then came back from Taiwan. Uh, in the Air Force to a command called Strategic Air Command, which no longer exists, but it was considered back then the toughest command in the Air Force. They they had the, you know, the strategic uh, B-52s and ICBMs, and it was just a very strict uh, command, very uh, strict uh, dress and appearance standards. And so, I, but I, now I show up on this base though with all this hair. Uh, and so, again, I would disguise it as best I could to stay in, within regulation during the day, my wife actually braided my hair during the weekend. Uh, again, to jump to the to near the end here was uh, one morning, Monday morning, I was not able to, the uh, term we used was pack my hair down. And so I was sitting in an office uh, with my hair, all, all, you know, over, all out in everywhere. And, and, and in hindsight, it was embarrassing. And, and as a, I was 19 years old, I, I should have even known better at 19, but I didn't. So, but fortunately for me, uh, I was in early, a chief master sergeant, uh, who in the Air Force is a top enlisted grade, walked by the office, sort of looked in and saw me, but didn't say anything. And I kind of wiped my forehead as though, man, I, I escaped a bullet there. Uh, and a few seconds later, you know, he literally did the Michael Jackson moonwalk and, and came back and looked in the door and said, I can't believe what I'm seeing. Uh, he, he said, Airman, get up from your chair and follow me. So I got up. Uh, I followed him outside. Uh, by the way, maybe you know the answer to this. I don't know. Uh, every senior NCO I have ever run into, they all had pickup trucks. I don't know. I don't know why that is, but they all had pickup trucks. So he put me in his pickup truck. He took me to the barber shop. He walked. We walked in. He paid the barber. He sat down in his chair. He said, "Give him a give him a military haircut." And so I sit there watching all my hair fall on the floor. Uh, as he had a big smile on his face. And so the interesting thing, though, is this chief master sergeant, he had seen me around, and he said, you know, I, you do good work. You know, you seem like a pretty uh, sharp guy, but he said, you know, you need to understand, if you're in the Air Force, uh, you know, you're going to have to follow the standards. And he said, look, I get it. I used to be young. I understand a lot of your friends are doing this, but look, you, if you want to get out of the Air Force and grow your hair long, then do it. But while you're in the Air Force, you need to follow the standards. And so we were back in his pickup truck, and we were on the way back. Really nice guy. And he decided to stop by the base park. And we just had a long talk about, you know, he asked me, what are your plans? What do you, you know, what do you want to do? You know, are you in college? Why are you wasting your time? I mean, you, you know, you're in the Air Force. And whether you decide to stay in and make it a career or not, you know, you should be, you know, you should be improving yourself. And you've got a family. And, and you need to take this serious. He said, are you taking college courses? I said, no. And he said, why not? And I didn't have a good answer. So he, we, he took me to the base education office 
I signed up for college courses on the spot. He took me back to work, never said a word to my boss, and became a mentor of mine ever since. So he got me on my way to completing my college degree and getting a commission in the Air Force. And, and obviously we don't have the time, but I've got mentors like that uh, that we could talk for a week about because it, throughout my life and my career, folks have stepped in uh, at strategic times and said, you know, why are you doing this or why don't you do that? And they were very, very helpful for me. Again, they looked at me and they said, this is not a bad person, but he's young and immature. I'm, I'm going to take this person under my wing. Uh, and, and I can't tell you how valuable that was to me. And by the way, I make it a point now as a result of that to mentor as many young folks as I can today because I know firsthand how important it is to have folks who will tell you what you need to know versus what you necessarily you know, think you want to hear. And I think that's really the lesson there is you have to be receptive to it. Somebody Correct. has to be willing to give it the, the straight story to you. And in a way that this uh, chief master sergeant did, he paid for the haircut. He didn't humiliate you. He Correct. took the, he took an interest in you. He l- had a long talk with you, and and then followed through by saying, "We're going right now, and you're going to sign up for college courses." And then didn't go back and ratch out, if you will, to your boss. I mean, right. it, it's there's a way to be a great mentor, and and the book has um, some phenomenal stories of people who've touched your life like that. And we're talking to uh, General Larry uh, Spencer. Uh, his book is Dark Horse his journey from the horseshoe to the Pentagon. Um, uh, General uh, Spencer is, at, at the time, was one of only nine African-Americans promoted to four stars. He, he ultimately became the Air Force's 37th Vice Chief of Staff. And as I said, the, that early, those early years are what I think have a lot of uh, really good lessons for us. But I also want to ask you to talk a little bit, because I think this becomes, a again, one of those pivotal points. You, you, you get your college in, you get, you, you get com- commissioned, you go to officer training school. But, but along the line, you changed your MOS from administration to financial management. And I think a lot of people don't, you know, they don't know of all the career opportunities in the military. And they may have an understanding of administration, but no understanding of what financial management is in an organization like this. And it really is where you made your bones. Um, uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, that uh, career change and, and its impact? Sure. Yeah, I was, uh, in, in, again, I, I, I entered the Air Force in administration. They don't, it's called communications now. It's a little bit fancier title, but uh, it was essentially uh, administrative. So, you know, typing, uh, postal. I, in fact, I worked in the post office when I was in Taiwan. Uh, so, you know, it, it, before a computer, you know, <laughs> I'm telling my age now, but when I joined the Air Force, there were no computers. Uh, and on my desk was a Royale typewriter. And, and most Many of your listeners probably never seen a typewriter. Uh, so, you know, that, it, it, there was a large administrative MOS, if you will, to manage all the administrative filing and all that sort of thing. Um, but, at, you know, at some point, you know, to be honest with you, that, that wasn't very exciting. Uh, and, and as I started to uh, take college courses, started to branch out, uh, started to, uh, my self-esteem started to improve. Uh, I really got fascinated with study. I learned how to study. 
I realized for the first time that, you know, my poor grades in school uh, weren't as a result of my intelligence or lack thereof. It was just an, a result of, one, confidence, and two, not knowing how to study and, 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 how, to, and, and how, to, you know, how to do homework and how to, how to figure out problems. So once I did that, I loved school. Uh, and it, it got me to branch out. And uh, a friend of mine uh, who was in the comptroller or financial management unit on the base invited me over to kind of look around. And I said, man, I, I, this looks great. Um, you know, and, 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 and the comptroller or the financial management career field uh, consists of several opportunities. One is the traditional accounting and finance, you know, where you pay people and you process vouchers. But there was also budget, you know, which you actually developed the budget for the base and executed that. And then there was something back then called cost analysis, where you actually did time motion studies and you, and you really focused on how to best save money and to make the base more efficient. So I sort of fell in love with that. And, and I, you know, I, <laughs> you know, by the way, anyone who reads the book, this will come through loud and clear. You know, I like to call myself very uh, frugal and uh, very cost efficient. If you ask my wife, she'll just tell you that I'm really cheap, uh, which, which, which is probably true as well. Uh, but that combination of, you know, my love for and passion for efficiency and saving money, it was just a natural marriage for me. And so I was really happy to be commissioned in that career field. And, and you, as you said, uh, kind of where I made my bones and my, and my reputation. Yeah, and it really allowed this uh, incredible uh, path up to four-star general uh, with uh, all, all kinds of opportunities along the way that nobody would ever thought this uh, low self, self-esteem, overweight uh, black kid from uh, inner city Washington would ever have had the opportunity for. And I think that's why um, your story is so inspirational is it, it gives us all hope we can move beyond maybe the place we, we see ourselves in. No, I, I agree 100%. And, uh, you know, uh, again, you know, I, you know, we, <laughs> without getting into politics here, I, I think regardless of your political leanings, I think most people would agree that our country is really divided right now. Um, and, and I think in, a, in the time that we're in right now, I think we need more sort of inspirational, uh, you know, uh, uh, examples to make us all step back and say, look, regardless of the differences we have, you know, we're still we're still in the greatest country on earth, and we, we can't let that that get away from us. Um, and 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 that if in this country, if you want to succeed, you can. Now, does it mean hard work? Absolutely, uh, for most of us. Uh, not most of many of us, or most of us are not born into a lot of wealth. Most of us have to do it the old-fashioned way. But in this country, can you do it? Absolutely. And I, and sometimes I worry that we're so busy fighting each other. Uh, that we, we forget to step back and say, you know what, uh, the, the reason we are able to fight each other is because we are in the greatest country on the planet, and that allows us the freedoms to say and speak our minds and to disagree uh, as we see please. So I hope this, my book will also sort of get people to sort of step back and say, yes, uh, you know, I, my situation may not be the best, uh, but that's okay. I can I can achieve my goals uh, in spite of that. Well, and the arc, Larry, is even more dramatic when you think back. Okay, this the Spencers have have moved from the tobacco farm to the Pentagon, right? In, in two generations. I mean, Correct. only in this country could you have pulled that off. Now, yeah, it wasn't easy. There's a lot of racism. There's a lot lot of impediments. 
but it can be done, and you've you did it. So again, I I really recommend the book Dark Horse, uh, General Larry O. Spencer, United States Air Force retired to folks. This was um, put out by the uh, United States uh, uh, Naval Institute Press. Um, you can find it at www.usni.org. It's also available in an ebook fashion, and and uh, general, I suspect I can buy this on uh, all of my regular. Uh, uh, e-commerce outlets as well. That that is correct. It's out there. Yeah, you whatever your favorite uh, outlet is for purchasing books, uh, it's out there. And I want to thank everybody for listening to Veterans Radio today. I am Jim Fossone. It's been a pleasure to be your host. I'm a veterans disability lawyer at Legal Help for Veterans, and you can reach us at eight hundred six nine three four eight zero zero or legalhelpforveterans.com on the web. You can follow Veterans Radio on Facebook and listen to its podcasts and Internet radio shows by going to veteransradio.net. And until next time, you are dismissed. If you have a VA claim denied by the Board of Veterans' Appeals, contact Legal Help for Veterans at 1-800-693-4800. They're experts in handling cases before the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans' Claims. Their number again, 1-800-693-4800. We again want to thank our national sponsors, the National Veterans Business Development Council, NVBDC.org, Eisenhower Center, VA Ann Arbor Health Care System, the Vietnam Veterans of America, Charles S. Kettles Chapter, Ann Arbor, Michigan, VFW Graf O'Hara Post 423 in Ann Arbor, and the American Legion Press Corn Post 46, also in Ann Arbor. They keep us on the air, as does your support. Go to Facebook, go to veteransradio.net, and support our efforts. And until next time, you are dismissed.